part of me deciding to be an artist was reading the book, the Jay-Z book, Empire State of Mind. And that was when I saw it clearly and I was like, oh, wait a minute, like this the music is a business and the music gives you access. It gives you access to capital, access to the network. It puts you, gives you a seat at the table. Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcy. This podcast is your place to gain insights from the executives in music, media, entertainment, and more who are taking hip-hop culture to the next level. This episode of the Trapital Podcast is brought to you by Symphony. Gaining traction is one of the hardest things for an artist to do. How do you break through all the noise? Well, it's a little easier when you work with the marketing experts who helped SZA, Metro Boomin, and 21 Savage grow. That's the team behind Symphony, the first AI-powered platform that brings all marketing workflows in one place. It's the operating system for up-and-coming independent artists and their teams. Symphony has facilitated over 100 million streams since 2021. With Symphony, you can run automated marketing campaigns on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok, centralize your fan CRM with data collection tools, and track fan base analytics and insights. Take your career to the next level and try Symphony for free at symphony.to slash trapital. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-Y dot T-O slash T-R-A-P-I-T-A-L. All right, today we have the one and only Mr. Easy, the artist entrepreneur. How you doing, man? Welcome to the pod. I'm good. I'm good. I'm chilling. What's going on? Me? I'm good, man. Trying to keep up with you. Trying to keep up with you. (laughs) I'm trying to keep up with me, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about that because you are someone who sits at this intersection of artist, investor, entrepreneur, and you are doing all of those three jobs and more. And it's also happening at this moment where the entire continent of Africa is booming from an entrepreneurship perspective, booming from a music perspective. How does it feel right now? How are you operating being at the center of that? To be honest, I just feel like it's a blessing to be born or to be existing in this time where, like you said, everything is just like taking shape. And, you know, yeah, it's exciting. And it's for me, it's like every day I'm seeing opportunity left and right and just figuring out what is fun and what is doable. And just, you know, going from thinking, oh, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur to, oh, I make music. And it's similar because it's products at the end of the day. On the bottom line, it's like you're selling music or you're selling some other product. And I thought they were two different things. But, you know, I'm seeing how it's one and the same. So it's just exciting to realize that I don't need to be two different people. I can still be the same me and operating both walls. So how are they similar for you, approaching both music and startups? So I feel like every artist is like a product because the artist has a brand, has a feel. It's like a service product. It's an emotional product, right? And every artist, you know, that IP, there's an IP with every artist. And the artist usually needs investment to scale. And like coming from like when I went out of school straight into 
an incubator program called 440NG. And I kind of, there I learned how, you know, your idea and your business, you know, you have the idea, you put it together, you iterate as the business keeps on going. So what you thought was the business at the beginning, you know, your customers could give you feedback and then you realize it evolves, it iterates, and you're trying to be as lean as possible and grow to the point where you have that critical volume to sort of like ask, what's the word, as proof that this is a valid idea, either via customers or via revenue. And then you try and get to, you know, you try and scale and you figure out what your unique value proposition is. And that's like with a startup, what's your unique value proposition? Who are your customers? What's the idea? You take it to market, you test it, you go get investment. And it's the same thing with every artist. So at the time where I decided to do music full-time, I was in an incubator program. And so I just started to see the similarities with the music. I'm like, okay, let me test it, put it out. People listen to it, you know, give me the feedback, you know. And the point where I decided I was going to take the music as a business was when, like, I got the first person reach out to me and say, hey, I want to pay you for a verse. So that was the first signifier to let me know that, okay, maybe I'm onto something. Then I started to have my early fans. Then Lauren Hill reached out and said she wanted me to come play at her show. And I thought it was fluke until I found myself in America performing and Lauren Hill coming out to say, I love you. Thank you so much for coming. And like all of that is like with a business, with a traditional startup, it could be different things. But for me, the revenue, the number of users, aka the fans, all of that were signifiers. And then I just needed, you know, the capital to take it to the next level. Right. So I think those are the similarities. And I've tried it when I started Empower. It was at the beginning, it was to test if they were one and the same. So I was like, okay, why Combinator sent, you know, picks a few start, a couple of startups, you know, does the incubator program, puts funding and whatnot to them. And then maybe 20% of them, you know, end up working out. And I did that with 100 artists across 11 African countries over 30,000 entries, then picked 100, then gave them the same amount of money, created the Empower YouTube channel to host their videos, service it the same way, and in the end start to see the ones that organically started picking up, and we had success with that. So for me, it was like, oh, wait a minute. It's one and the same. I've proved this, and that's when Empower then turned from you know, the program I was doing to actually full-service music company because I had proved that it was the same. And in the same way you invest in a song, I remember the first Joe Boy song, the visualizer cost me $500. And then the song ended up having like 30 million views in like a year. And, you know, Joe Boy just went boom, 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 boom. So I started to say, okay, there is a process here and perhaps we could do it with other artists, you know? So to answer your question, that's how I see both as you know, one and the same in a way. That makes sense. And I want to talk about Empower specifically because this is you bringing so many of those startup concepts to music. Like you said, you saw what Y Combinator is doing. How could you apply that here? The difference though, is that with Y Combinator, the promise is of course an exit. So they're hoping this company's get acquired. They're hoping that they go public. 
In music, though, what does that look like for you as someone that is taking equity stakes in the artist? What does your return look like? What does your exit look like? So, I mean, first off, the return is like when you invest, you know, you invest to create the content, you put it out, put some marketing, and you start to see, you know, the streams coming, the revenue coming, the artist is now doing live shows, getting endorsement deals. You know, you could get four, five X, 10 X multiples, you know, in time. So that's one. But secondly, like on a developmental standpoint, you could develop the artist and then a big label comes and says, oh, we want to upstream. So upstreaming is like a sale. It's like an exit. And you could still have passive rights to get passive income on the artist. So those are like the kind of like returns and the kind of like exits. Plus, you could just invest in the IP, buy it up. And next thing, somebody wants to sample it and then they have to write you a big check. And it could happen now. It could happen in like 10 years, in 15 years time. You know, you could have a record just lying. I'll give you an example. Recently, the Joe Boy record that didn't make it to, the Joe Boy is one of my artists. The song didn't make it to his album. And so we then licensed the song to a guy called Lakizo. You know, he puts out the record. You know, there's not so much thought to that. I wake up one day, Bad Bunny has put out an album and I'm just listening to the album because I'm a fan and I hear a record there and I'm like, basically what I was trying to say is, so you have that record that didn't make it to the album, right? And it's just there and we license it to this guy. And the next thing, the record appears on a Bad Bunny album and that's like the biggest artist in the world last year by a lot of metrics. And so that's like an example of, you know, an exit because you make this record and then boom, and the upsides are like, you know, so high. And right now on the market, even if you wanted, you're seeing, you know, my mentor, one of my mentors, Merck Mekudalis, you see how many multiples from 10 to 23, 24X last year's revenue on, you know, buying rights for music. So I think there's multiple exits and even just the music and music IP as an asset class has been proven to be a valid asset class by Merck and the likes. For instance, I was I was part of the deal, the KKR deal that bought, I don't know if you saw that some time ago, that bought a lot of the rights, including The Weeknd, etc. I was part of that deal via one of the companies. And you could see how, you could see what an exit looks like. So there's multiple exits for music, whether it's an upstreaming deal from the label or it's a straight up acquisition of the catalog or it's just multiples of revenue the artist is now beginning to earn. Or if you're a label, you could get your entire label could become upstreams or you could go into a JV type situation. So that speaks more to the flexibility that's offered with being able to invest in music. It isn't just this one-time event that you're hoping yeah. for as a startup investor. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And with that too, you mentioned that you have 100 artists that at least came through the first cohort, over 30,000 had applied. And when you're measuring your success for them, I'm sure that each of the things you mentioned are the things that you hope for, but along the way, what are some of those key performance indicators or what are some of those things that you're looking for to hope that traction can be gained to hopefully get to the point where you do have 
positive financial event that comes? I mean, it starts with like hyper local recognition. So, you know, I give example, there was this like, I think she was 18 or 17 at the time. Nick, her name is Nikita and she's from Kenya. She had joined the program. She didn't make it to the top 10, but we put out the video and, you know, that song started to gain local traction in Kenya, even though she didn't make it to the final 10. And by local traction, I mean like number of downloads, it made it to radio, you know, it made it to press, picking it up. And even though she wasn't part of the top 10 and I didn't give her follow-on funding, she got signed to Universal. So for me, that's a testament of like the success. And those are like KPIs, like, okay, does it get to radio in your local country? Does it get, you know, that local you know, appreciation from the fans in your country? And then when does it start to transcend? And there's nothing wrong with you having a popular song in Kenya or in Tanzania, but by the time it starts to go from Tanzania, you know, to rest of East Africa and then comes to the West, you know, those are the things you look out for. And, you know, next level is by the time you start getting booked for shows based on the one, two, three singles you put out. That makes sense. That makes sense. Let's shift gears a bit to startups, because I know that's the other space that you're actively in. What is your thesis for investing in startups? Right now, what I do is like, you know, I can bring some form of value to. So when I look at like the idea or like when my team, you know, sends me some deal flow and we kind of walk through it, it's like, okay, aside the money, what else can we bring to this business, you know, and if I'm able to spot some extra form of value I can bring to help the business scale, then I want to invest. You know, it could be marketing. Can I add some marketing? Can I add some of my experience here? Can I leverage on my network in this other side, aside the money? And most of the investments I've been making haven't been personal. They've been via my collective, Zagada Capital. And Zagada Capital is basically, for now, it's 12 people like myself, young, successful African boys or girls who usually, you know, find it boring to speak to the financial guys and, you know, have some form of liquidity. And so when we get the deal flow, can I just look at who's in the collective and who can add value then we bring it to the collective and then we invest. So it's majorly been, it's like 90% been Africa focused because I feel like there's so much opportunity on the continent and also on the sentimental level, the amount of impact the investment does when it's on the continent makes is something that's bigger than just the money. And the money is great. Like, you know, we've seen a lot of African companies hit and cross a billion dollar valuations to become unicorns. So you know that can happen. But at the same time, the impact, and it's always fun when I go to an office that I'm an investor in, all the like employees, they are excited that Mr. Easy is in our office and Mr. Easy is a shareholder. Like you can't buy that. And I think that's what I always wanted because like part of me deciding to be an artist was reading the book, the Jay-Z book, Empire State of Mind. And that was when I saw it clearly. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. Like this, 
the music is a business and the music gives you access. It gives you access to capital, access to the network. It puts you, gives you a seat at the table. And, you know, your merch, merchandising could be like the three cap that Chance the Rapper does, or it could be Uber, or it could be, you know, PowerPay, which I've invested in that, you know, is the number one mobile money for cost payments aggregator in Africa doing over 1 million transactions a day, you know, and so it's different things. And I know how I can bring value beyond my cash than just watch it grow and it's exciting. That makes sense. So that collective, that operates a lot like a syndicate. You all are sharing DSC where you can add value. What stage do you normally invest in and how much money are you normally putting into startups? You know, it's different. Like we've done like some seed stage. We did a company that was looking at listing last year on the LSE. We've done growth stage as well. So it really depends. It depends on where it comes to us and it could be as low as, you know, 25K check, which just gets maybe if it's a 25K check, I might just take 50% of it and just say, hey guys, do the rest. And you just put it on the platform we use and boom, 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 everybody just clicks and it's done. Once it's done, it's done. Like I just invested in a platform called Ruka Hair and it is a startup that you know, provides hair for people of African descent based out of London. And that was a small check, but, and it is growth stage, you know, so it really varies and there's no rule. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Keep it flexible and gives you the opportunity yeah. to just see everything that's coming through. What are some common trends that you're seeing? What are some things that you're seeing from the founders or from the startups that are coming through, especially the ones that are getting markups and getting closer to exits? I'm seeing like, you know, companies that solve fundamental problems, you know, and I know there's so much buzz on fintech. It's like everybody just gets a hard on for African fintech. But like, for instance, is if these products are solving specific, like there's a company called Eden Life, which I invested in. And what this company does is like, you know, there are a lot of people like myself who we don't stay in town enough, like enough for us to like have a chef and all of that. And we have very busy schedules. So we want like meal preps delivered to us. And we want like our laundry picked up, you know, that's a very middle-class sort of like early into the job market, like pre-family kind of typeset. And so that kind of product is a product that's like valid because like you're solving a particular need, you know, or PISA, for instance, that I invested in. So PISA gives some remittance-based lending to people in Mexico. So, you know, the love Mexicans in the U.S. sending money back to Mexico to their family and their loved ones. And PISA uses that data of how much you get recurring every month. Like my mom and dad, I put them on allowance. Like I pay them an allowance every month, right? So we use, like, by the way, for clarity, they don't need it like they're good. But it's just something I do. 
and the other people in cultures like African culture, like in Africa, it's a pride for you, even if your dad is a billionaire, like being able to do something for your dad is like, it's like a pride. It's like you've achieved, right? So you have people sending money back home, you know, either to Mexico or to different parts of Africa, to either family that need it or to do stuff with it, like build a house back home or to help the family school fees or whatever, or just out of sentiment, like it's like paying your tithe. I don't know if you're Christian. It's like when you pay 10% of your income to the church. It's something like that. And then there's all that data, all that data, because it's like salary, right? It comes every month, usually on a certain day. So PISA uses that information to provide loans to people, and that's like a need. That's a specific need. So that's what we are, yeah. What are some of the bigger challenges right now for startups in Africa? I think one of the biggest challenges is, you know, getting funding. And you see a lot of, like, African startups. YC has been doing a, a great job. But there are, you know, and, like, Future Africa, which I'm part of, and I'm an advisor, you know, investing in these projects. But raising funds is, like, so hard. There's still a hesitance when it comes to African startup raising funds, especially at seed stage. And usually this is not a lot of money. It's like from 20K checks to like even hundreds is a lot of money, you know, but that 50K to get you into flight mode. So I think that's the biggest issue. It's not lack of ideas. It's, you know, getting funding, especially local funding. There's not a lot of local funding sources. There's few options like the YCs and it's hard to get in. But generating that local funding is still a problem as a lot of the, you know, organizations and a lot of investors are still trying to understand this whole tech investment and valuation. I have my uncles ask me, you said this company is, is worth $20 million. Do they have 20 million cash in their account? Or do they have buildings? Where's the building? Where's the physical asset? You know, it's that culture going from brick and mortar to technology and understanding evaluation and all of that. And then you have sectors that are now like so hot that valuations are going crazy, you know, and you have like, depending on what sector you are, a lot of the countries are just catching up to technology. And in some places, there are no laws written for the kind of products you're creating. So if you're not in sync with the regulators, the regulators might pass a law that is detrimental to your business. And all of a sudden, you wake up one morning and your successful business is now killed, just like the motorbike railing company. I've forgotten the name in Lagos that was really growing. And then with one day regulations like no motorbike transportation in Lagos, boom, dead. So... I think it's not just in an Africa peculiar problem. It's like, for instance, with crypto and, you know, a lot of, you know, countries trying to understand what is going on. So you're having innovation outpacing regulation. And, you know, if there's no proper interaction, you're having like regulations could just like be the end of you. So I think access to capital and in some sectors, depending on your sector, regulation as well could be a major setback. 
the access to capital piece, I could see that, especially since the friends and family round is such a key piece or having the angels out of there is such a key piece to help make that happen. But if the people that have the financial means are fewer and far between, you know, whether it's folks like you or others that are in your syndicate or maybe some of the other co-investors you have, that means that the deal flow that you all get is heightened even more so because there's just so few other places, which makes you all need to be even more selective, I can imagine, than you maybe otherwise prefer to be. Yeah. I mean, how do you feel with that perspective as someone that wants to see the space grow, but you know that you can't back everybody, even though, you know, I'm sure inherently you wish you would, but you still have your own rubrics. You still have your way that you evaluate things. And that likely has to be even heightened given the number of deals that you're seeing. Yeah. I mean, like one of the things I pray I have some days, fuck you money. Do you understand? So just like, because like 1.2 billion people in Africa on the continent. And it's like, if you think of the amount of money that comes back to Africa from the African diaspora, it's like, I think it's like over a trillion dollars a year. So there's so much opportunity. Um, but like you said, what this does is it makes things a little bit harder for people, you know, entrepreneurs who need the money and the proof is in the pudding. Like, I always say, like, although it takes time and things are changing, don't get me wrong, things are changing. There are more local VCs funding. But, like, I probably know, like, five people with net worths over 100 million, right? But now, for me to get to the point where, and these are people who've amassed all this wealth with brick and mortar businesses. So now, you know, there's a job to do to sort of like show proof, show validity that, hey, I invested at this point. It's not for Gazi. It's not a pyramid scheme and like show people and then you get more people coming in. And I have seen like some of my friends who are like billionaires now start to set up separate funds to say, okay, you know what? I don't really know what this tech thing is about, but, you know, put the money in future Africa or put it in some other fund and try to learn. So it's more sort of like publicity. And sometimes the drop, the setbacks are when there's a big startup out of the continent that then runs into all sorts of scandals. And then, you know, it causes five steps backwards. And that's not peculiar to Africa. Like, I mean, you've seen what happened to FTX, right? So that happens everywhere. The only difference is, you know, because it's still kind of new, it causes more negative effects, you know. So I think there needs to be more education, more PR to the successes of these companies. Every success is a success and should be, you know, communicated and things will get better because there is capital on the continent. There is like loose capital on the continent looking for where to invest. You know, so, I mean, things are changing. Like Future Africa, I always keep mentioning Future Africa. Like they've been able to show that, you know, they know what they're doing. There is a method to the madness. They could deliver results in terms of like revenue. You know, they invested in Move, which is a company that provides, you know, the cars for Uber drivers. And it's, you know, I think it's now a unicorn. And that's like a very particular need because, you know, Drivers need cars, but they don't have the capital to 
purchase the cars, right? And going through the banking route, you're going to have to bring collateral, your mom's name, your grandmother's house, plus the high interest, you know, so they've identified, and this has been a problem. It's still a problem till today that they've been able to solve. So I think the more people know about this, the more education, the more things will open up. The PR piece you mentioned is interesting because from my side living in the States, I'll see the articles about a company like Carry First, which I do think has had a fair amount of PR. I feel like one of their announcements got an, got an article in The Hollywood Reporter. So I remember seeing things like that, but feel like it does become fewer and farther between, at least from what you are seeing from the awareness of some of these things. Yeah, you're correct. And it's not so much, I understand why, like, there's a lot of PR, outside looking PR, like you said, you know, New York Times, you know, LA, blah, 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 because that's where the money is coming from, right? But like, I'm talking more intra-Africa PR, like for the money on the continent, you know, because that's like easily, like it's right there in your face. You know, there's enough money in Lagos for there not to be any need to raise capital from outside. You get what I'm saying? There's so much capital in Lagos, like from Lagos, you feel me? Or from Rwanda, you know, and Rwanda is trying to position itself as that, you know, pro startup investing, you know, so there's money on the continent. And it's like, that's what I mean by PR and publicity and awareness. If I wasn't friends with, like, I met Ian, was co-founder of Flutterwave, and then Andela, you know, and then Move. So three unicorns, right? And, you know, we've been friends and we've been investing together. If there was not that proximity to him or to Shola, the founder of Paystar that got bought by Stripe, I wouldn't know that this was going on. You feel me? Maybe, you know, I wouldn't have known. So that's what I mean, you know, because, like, Every A-list Afrobeat artist can be a VC, you know, can be investing, you know. So that's exactly what I mean. It's interesting you bring up the music piece because I'd be curious to hear how you feel some of these challenges that African startups may face. How do the African artists themselves fare in that regard? Do you think that they have similar challenges with funding or with regulations in that way? There's regulation issues, like, for instance, collecting publishing revenue on the continent is a joke, right? Why is that? Or collecting streaming revenue. Because, like, for you to be able to collect publishing revenue, you need the government to enforce the laws for the radio stations to pay you, you know, publishing royalties on the music they play. For the bars to be able to pay for what they play, like for the use of your music. So you need strong... In a lot of African countries, these laws are there, but there's no enforcement because I would say it's worse for creatives because people still look at the creative sector as a joke. The orange economy is like, ah, that's not really business. Like that's just young people with dreadlocks just singing and dancing and jumping across the world. Yes, they hear the music everywhere. Yes, now things are getting better because they're seeing teams at the Grammys, the same Bonaboy, you know, and Whiskey doing Madison Square Garden. But there's not a lot of education for them to really understand the business of music or creativity. 
So even I remember like two years ago, I spoke to almost all the bank MDs or three years ago, almost all the bank MDs in Nigeria, trying to convince them on why music is a business, is a valid business. But I couldn't get funding. And that's me being a successful African artist, showing the revenue, showing all of that. Like I once got on a panel with, you know, a financial institution that was meant that they have a fund. They have like a $500 million fund for investing in creatives. And I was on a panel with somebody there and the person said, oh, it is impossible to protect music IP. It is difficult to protect music IP. And I was like, whoa, 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 what? In like, are you kidding me? Like there's Shazam technology. There's like every song has an ISRC code. And like, if you upload the song in Kenya or in, in Afghanistan, like on YouTube, like it will pick it up instantly. So when you have a situation where you have an institution that has up to a billion to invest in creatives, but you're having the key stakeholders who decide who gets what telling you or speaking out confidently and saying is in part to protect the IP you know, you then that just shows you where it's at. So there's still a love, but I feel like that's why there needs to be more education, you know, just like for startups to music, to let people realize that this is a business, like there's revenue to be earned, not just live revenue, like streaming revenue, publishing revenue, especially now that the world is looking to Africa. Like you're seeing A-list artists jumping on Afrobeat records, like, What's that song? Essence. Essence was a hit song before Justin Bieber jumped on it. It was already a global smash. Peru was a global smash before Ed Sheeran jumped on it. So you're having like pure Afrobeat records in our local language, produced locally in some hotel room in Lagos, you know, going on to be big songs globally without any major support from, without necessarily you know, and no A&R, like support, like his producers locally. And you're seeing this. So you do know that this is the time or, you know, like the example I gave, you know, Bad Bunny, you know, sampling a Joe Boy record and putting it on his album, putting an Afrobeat record on his album. You know, that's an example. And by the way, that wasn't cleared properly. And like, I'm about to go, you know, go crazy with the lawyers to, make sure I get my bread and more importantly, the writers and the producers get their due credit and revenue. And, you know, did Bad Bunny's team reach out before this? No, no, no. I literally just listened to Bad Bunny's album and I just heard Joe Boy's voice at the end of the record. And I was like, I've heard this record before. And then I realized it's a record that didn't make it to his album. And I'm like, wait a minute. And then my team starts speaking to them since May of last year. And it's just, back and forth to the point where I'm like, okay, you know what? You guys have had fun with this. Like, I'm just going crazy on this. Let's get lawyers. Let's make it like a proper lawsuit. But what I'm trying to, or you have, you know, Beyonce, you know, doing the Lion King, the gift and having creatives from all over Africa put it. So like, you know, you're having Drake, you know, with Whiskey on one dance. You're having Ed Sheeran, Justin Bieber, jump on multiple Afrobeat records that are Afrobeat records. You're having people, more and more people sampling Afrobeat records, you know, and maybe not giving proper credit or do, or you're having, like I once produced 
and was on co-produced and wrote and featured on a record with J Balvin and Bad Bunny on the joint album and Afrobeat record. So your scene is becoming more global and global. So we need to be able to tell these stories to the funding sources back home to establish that this is indeed a business. So it's education, the same way education for the startups, but even more for music because music was never, and creatives, you know, was never looked at as a valid business. It was looked at as things people who don't graduate from school or people who just want to be jokers do. But right now people are saying, wait a minute, wow, that artist bought a car, that artist bought a house, that artist did this, did that, oh, Grammys, oh, this, that, that. So, But there still needs to be more information back home to the business side of the music to know that behind that sold out MSG is a check and behind that billboard is a check, you know, and even the TikTokers. Like I was speaking to someone at the bank and explaining to my bank MD friend that, you know, I showed him a lot of payments. Like TikTokers in Nigeria are getting paid as much as $10,000 to put up a post on their TikTok. 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds. You know, and I had to show this and he was like, what? Are you serious? And then he went back to ask his kids and find out that, oh, wow, this is a thing. You know, so it's that education I mean, because there is the capital on the continent. It's just like, how do you get it? And it's a lot of work to do to basically explain and explain and explain. And one needs to have the patience. And it's hard to do that while still running my label, doing everything I'm doing, putting out music for myself, you know. So, you know, but thankfully, I'm not the only one doing it. Don Jazzy is doing it. Olamide is doing it. There are more examples. So one way or the other, people are seeing it. How do you feel about the investment in African music that has come from the West? So thinking about Universal Music Group opening up record label in Africa and some of the other majors having different concentration in Nigeria or elsewhere. How has that been and what type of impact has that had, if any, on your end? I mean, I think it's good. It's a good signifier because all these labels were in Africa from the days before Fela, right? You had all these labels in Nigeria before, you know, the nationalization where, you know, the government had passed that all the companies should be nationalized and the labels got sold to local owners. So you're just having, you have Majek Fashek that was on the late, late show, the late night show in 1991, bro. So when people say, oh, African music is then becoming popular. It's being popular and it's coming back again with technology and and everything. So I think it's good. I think the more, you know, major labels coming to Africa, but not just as, oh, let's test to see what happens. But the more investment that comes, the more structure there will be for the business and the more signifiers, you know, to show people who want to invest, you know, so... Yeah, I, I welcome it, and I think there should be more funding, and there should be more, like the local companies should be autonomous. You know, I think that's been the only drawback with the majors. Pardon me, I might be wrong, don't quote me. Where you're seeing the local, you know, Universal Nigeria or Sony or whatever, you know, that local team not having a lot of autonomy in the checks they're writing to the artists 
or taking those risks, they have to get approval from maybe South Africa or, you know, London or LA. Meanwhile, everything is happening on the ground in Lagos. So you're having distributors. So I think a lot of the most recent successes have been by more distributors than record label in breaking artists. So more like Empire or 1RPM or The Orchid or Empower or, you know, Believe because these distributors are more flexible and have been able to give a lot more autonomy to the local guys who are running these local companies to write those checks. Because like, what is somebody in London, like with all due respect, like I always say this as a joke, there's no songwriter in the world that would have written, I don't care how many Grammys you've gotten, you cannot write soccer, 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 baby. That's the whiskey song. You can't write that song. Or one of my favorite artists, Wande Cole, there's a part of his song where he just spits gibberish. Like he don't mean anything. Like it's a vibe. So like with all due respect to your A&R ears, you don't know the music. Like even me, I'm from Nigeria, but I always have to be updated. So there needs to be more investment and more autonomy. But I love it. Like the more labels come in, and the more distribution companies come in and there's this competition, the more money is invest, invested. And when you invest money, then you start to structure it. Then you start to say, hey, why are we not making as much money locally? Okay, let's invest in touring, you know, in Nigeria, in on the continent. Let's go lobby for enforcement of collection of royalties. So, yeah. Have you seen any success stories from the major record label side in Africa yet? There's none that comes to mind in terms of breaking an artist. So you have Whiskey signed, you have Davido signed, you have Bonoboy signed, you know, and this is like A-list, A-list, right? But if you look at all the artists that have broken, Buju, for instance, initially signed to Bonoboy and then Empire broke him. You know, that's Buju, Fireboy, Via Empire, and Olamide's YBNL. Thames, you know, independently broke with her record. I think she's been upstreamed now. So in terms of sort of like carrying that conversation, you know, outside to the rest of the world, yes, I'm sure there's been a lot of success, like the Whiskey record, you know, Bonaboy, entire Renaissance and you could go on and on. But in terms of actually finding an artist and breaking the artist, there's not a lot of successes. And I think that's down to autonomy because, you know, you have some executives moves from the label to the distributors and do well, you know, with just understanding, you know, how to A&R and how to put out music on the continent. And you can't just bring like, somebody who's of Nigerian descent and just expect that they will understand. Like I am Nigerian, but every time I go back to Lagos, I'm like, whoa, the sound has changed, you know? So that on the ground, on the ground, you know, and there's a lot of work. Definitely. And yeah, I know that 
there's so much interest, but like you said, if they don't have the control or the ability to really make decisions on their own, I can easily see why an empire or some of the other distributors have been able to have success there. But Mr. Easy, man, this is great. I feel like you gave us a snapshot of where everything is right now on music and investing side. But before we let yeah. you go, for you, what's big on the road for you? Still beginning of the year, what's big on the deck for you? What do you got coming up? I mean, I kind of like needed a break from putting out music and touring. And when COVID happened, I was like, oh, thank God. Like, because I was battling with, oh, if I, should I pause? Like, it was just routine doing the same thing and it was like too much for me. So I was able to have that pause and put some of the attention towards like growing and power with my co-founder and then leaving it to him to sort of like, you know, and come back to iterate, iterate, change the model, blah, 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 build the team. And I just went off and started doing like investment and putting more time in the startups I was investing in. And now I'm in Cape Town recording. I'm putting out two albums this year, one in September and one in, I think, April or May. So I'm just recording that now. And I feel like, and now I want to go back on the road, but not first as my usual live band touring, but first as sort of like a curator where I bring like, you know, the way Major Laser tour, where they have the sound system with Walshi and Diplo and Ape drums. But instead of Diplo and Ape drums, I select like the DJs, maybe one playing Afropop, one playing Amapiano, and one playing something else. And I am the Walshi Fire, sort of like putting it together, Hype Man MC. So that's what I want to tour the first part of the year once I put out the Chop Life album. So that's called chop life. To chop life means to enjoy life. So I'm making an sort of Afro dance album that I'll put out first. And then I will tour as chop life sound system. We're doing these parties, you know, of majorly Afro B parties, sound system across the world. And then I drop the album, the second album, and I tour as, okay, this is my album tour. So that's the plan. Hopefully I'm able to complete the first album. The second album is done. It's just in mixing and mastering. That's the September one. It's done just in mix and mastering phase. And then this first one I'm recording. That's what I'm, I'm recording right now, recording downstairs. Nice, nice. Well, looking forward to all that, man. And thank you. No, this has been a pleasure. And yeah, so people that want to follow along and keep up with all that, where should they go to follow you? Follow me everywhere, all social media, at Mr. Easy, M-R-E-A. Z-I-M-R-E-A-Z-I, -I, Mr. Easy. Yeah, everywhere, everywhere on social media. All right. And I want to see you at one of my shows. You have to come. Maybe when I do the parties, where are you right now? I'm in San Francisco. Cool. I'm sure I'll be coming around LA, San Fran at some point this yeah, year. Yeah, come so through. I'd send you an invite. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> All right, man, we'll talk soon. All right, have a good one. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapolo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. 
Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.